So people can, we can prove that the Lightning Network works to people by sending them dollars on the Lightning Network. And when they get comfortable and confident and have five extra dollars at the end of the month to save, they can save it in stats and they'll already have the wallet on their phone. So really Tarot creates this Trojan horse opportunity for digital USD, right? For Tether to Trojan horse Bitcoin into that family's savings plan. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. In this episode, we speak to Elise Colleen, the founder and managing partner of Stillmark. She is focused on the firm's investments. Elise has 10 years of experience identifying and investing in frontier technologies. She founded Stillmark to focus solely on investments and innovation in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Elise entered the Bitcoin industry in 2013 as one of the first institutional investors to study the potential of Satoshi Nakamoto's invention. Her first investments in the field were made in 2014 and include the initial financing for Blockstream, a now unicorn company for which she serves as board director. Elise is also on the boards of Satoshi Energy and Ibex Mercado. With Elise, we talk about a range of topics, including the cyberpunk mailing list, entrepreneurship and Bitcoin, anticipating where the markets are heading as a VC, lightning development, and the huge potential that Taro brings. BCB is sponsored by CoinKite. CoinKite has a suite of cypherpunk devices to check out. We would say that arguably the most important one is the cold card Mark IV. This small, unassuming calculator-like device has the magical ability to protect your Bitcoin. The magical state that your Bitcoin enters when on a Mark IV is what we at BCB call Bitcoin Nirvana. It is free of the dregs and risks of the harsh, cold internet and is whisked away to a place of peace, serenity, and security on your Mark IV. Rapture your Bitcoin onto a cold card Mark IV before it is sent to the hell-like state that is always lurking at an exchange. There are many names for Bitcoin hell, Mt. Gox, Celsius, Quadriga. Protect your BTC from these terrors. Use code BCB for 5% off the cold card Mark IV. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Elise, uh, you were just saying you were sitting around for several months waiting for the invite onto BCB, so welcome to the big leagues. Uh, How are you today? (laughs) I'm good. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. We're uh, we're really excited for this chat. I think you in particular, like you have a lens on this space that we don't. And so we've got a question deck we're pretty excited to dive into and pick your brain. Um, for anyone listening, plug for YouTube here. I am uh, sporting my first flannel of the season. Uh, there, the air has gotten brisk. It's gotten colder here in the Chicago area. And, um, I don't know how you feel Elise and Josh, but I feel pretty good about how I look in this thing today. Every, everybody else agree. Nothing hides steel nipples like a flannel, right? Dan, I feel like we're color coordinated. So I like that, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Elise, how are you today? Introduce I'm yourself good. to our audience. Tell us, tell us what's going on. 
I'm good. I'm excited to be here. So, so my name is Elise Colleen. I'm the managing director and founder of a Bitcoin-focused venture capital firm called Stillmark that launched in 2019. So, um, right ahead of talking to you all, I was I spent a day speaking to founders, both folks in our portfolio and people that are building new projects and. It's a really lovely way to spend time. So we have the privilege of talking to folks as they think through how to advance Bitcoin, how to get it into more people's hands, how to make it more useful once it's in people's hands. And it's just, you know, it's a really, it's a real privilege to be in this spot. Prior to launching Stillmark, I had a decade in venture capital experience where I focused on mostly infrastructure tech and enterprise tech. And I've spoken a lot about this before, but really what that looked like were frontier technologies like cloud networking, then it was something new, um, cybersecurity, things like that. And so when I found Bitcoin in 2013, I saw it as a new infrastructure that could be really important for a more inclusive payments network and a more inclusive, more inclusive access to the ability to save um, and to pass on wealth to your family. And so, you know, that's how I ended up here. And after, you know, sort of falling down the rabbit hole in 2013, I haven't looked back. I've, it was, it's, um, you know, I've been very fortunate to be able to find a way to be full-time in Bitcoin. That's, that's awesome. Who is, who would you say is your person from 2013 or 14 that really helped deliver this to you that made you, helped you understand what Bitcoin was and what it could mean for the future? Okay, well, I could credit so many people with that, but I'll say the most important thing in my experience that I recommend to people broadly and that, that they have access to is to go back to the old cypherpunk uh, mailing list discussions, mm. because the history of both what preceded Bitcoin and then the discussions that happened with Hal Finney, most famously, and others, when Satoshi published the white paper to that group, were, are really informative on how Bitcoin has developed and where it's going and what was intended at launch. And just to give an example of this, um, the concept of Lightning Network or a second layer that would solve the scaling problem around transactions was something discussed as early as 2009 or 2010. And everyone has access to that information. Most, most folks don't dive in deep, but if you do, you can actually start to get to know Satoshi and the context and culture that Bitcoin was emergent from. I think there's this sort of mistaken history in the crypto space that Bitcoin is ground zero, but really Bitcoin emerged from 20 prior years of research and experimentation on how to get to decentralized finance, and and that was Bitcoin. So it was it was certainly not ground zero. There were several projects and really robust re research and discussion that that Bitcoin came from, and you have access to all of that by going to the cypherpunk mailing list chats. And so, you know, there were there were others, of course, that I was in person with and that I was able to meet very early on. Um, but the consistency of being able to go go back to those discussions is I think what was most helpful to me and can offer the same value to folks today. My guess is that the average uh, crypto VC fund manager hasn't read through the cypherpunk mailing list, Josh, but I could be off on that. Stillmark launched in 2019, right? What And you got interested in this in 2013. 
Were you in venture capital? Was Bitcoin part of your portfolio? Walk us through kind of the evolution of your conviction strengthening over the years. So I was always trying to make it more of a part of my work, but I was not, um, you know, I was working for folks at a fund versus managing a fund practice myself. And so it was, you know, sort of, um, I, I, I thought that I could convince the folks that I was working for to pay attention to Bitcoin. But frankly, they were really accomplished in what they had already developed expertise in. They were good at what they did. And I think the risk reward ratio for them was different than it was for me. They could continue doing the same thing and, um, and do very well while doing that. But I also wanted to do good work while doing well, if that makes sense. So the opportunity to progress culture or financial inclusion um, and just, you know, basic financial equality was or um, like equal access to tools and equal access to an economy. I, I think that's the best way to do well while doing good um, is a great way to spend time. And so for me, the risk reward um, evaluation was just different. In 2014, I did have the opportunity to split time between the fund I was working at then and some smaller boutique venture firms. And so I did some investing um, that year, including by backing um, Blockstream in its first sort of formation round. And so in 2014, I got to know those guys, including Adam. And so Josh, when you ask about people that have been important in my development of insight around the space or yeah. in sort of being able to he's ask be better and better, of course, um, he's the grandfather of Bitcoin, right? Not in terms of age, but in terms of effort and sort of the foundation right. that he laid for Bitcoin. Um, and some so suspect it's maybe I was going to say some suspect maybe even father of Bitcoin, but uh, that's something we'll diverge into later. Maybe he 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 denies it, and so um, I think you know Adam is such a truth. My um, history with Adam is that he's an incredibly truthful and honest and just sort of transparent person, and so. Um, you know, I, I think for him to hide something like that would be really challenging. It's not in yeah. his nature to obfuscate, which is, I think is something we see of other leaders in crypto. But um, if Adam is one of the folks at the forefront of Bitcoin, I think he's not an obfuscator, as you know, and and most of the leaders and are um, sort of like community leaders in Bitcoin or not. So um, another another thing that I'm grateful for in this space. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to think about sort of the, the, the years he's been through ideating on this theme and idea. Um, and, and I think going back, I mean, for me, it was the, it's not necessarily pre inception of Bitcoin, but for me reading the book of Satoshi, some of the themes you just identified really struck me in reading that about how early some of these ideas came out, it, it, even on, you know, the Bitcoin mailing list in the forums, like, holy shit, they were talking about this in 2010, right? And I think it's fascinating and commendable that you spent the time to go back and do that. I think I it was you were on with safe kind of explaining, digging back through those things. Is there anything else? It sounds like one of the primary ideas that emerged was scaling. What else sort of struck you from reading the mailing list that's informed or influenced how you do venture capital? Sure. So I think that understanding the intentions behind the development of the tech is very helpful. 
And, um, you know, people fall in love with Bitcoin for different reasons. But to understand what the group of folks that helped build Bitcoin intended and where and Adam is one of those people, right? His life, his life's work is making Bitcoin possible. Even if he's not Satoshi, his his life's work has made what Satoshi did possible. Um, to understand why they did that and why someone would just put their heads down and focus on things like privacy and personal finance, access to a global economy, ability to transact with your peers, helps you understand why the tech was built the way it was and why the trade-offs in developing the technology or maintaining it are weighed the way that they are. Um, and so the other thing, though, just from a venture capital perspective, is that you can, it's sort of like a cheat to go in and read the forms because you can see that some of the things that people um, are curious about, why this in the tech, why this limitation or why, why, you know, why are we not, why proof of work, for example. Those sorts of questions have been answered or at least have been discussed in depth by folks that have spent their entire life trying to figure out the solution. And so we can we can get ahead as as fiduciaries of capital. Right. So venture capital is about taking people's um, capital in and intending to make a return on that capital. Right. So it's um, you know, there's it's there's math here. And to optimize those returns, you want to avoid mistakes if you can. And just to give a really practical example of this, in 2014 and 2015, there was a lot of venture capital invested in um, payment processors in the Bitcoin space. And that, of course, preceded Lightning Network. And so it made sense if you read the white paper and only the white paper that maybe Bitcoin would be a transaction layer that would scale but if you read the mailing list discussions, you would know that those sorts of challenges and the bottlenecks that would happen at the core protocol layer would create a ceiling on the growth and transactions that you could see at Bitcoin Core and that a second layer was going to be necessary. So, you know, I wasn't one of the folks that participated in, in those funding rounds. And so I was able to avoid that mistake because I had done the work um, in sort of trying to understand what folks that had two decades in the space knew that might not be obvious to someone that was newer in the space. So just in terms of being a responsible fiduciary of a venture capital fund, I think it's incumbent upon people to become familiar with that historical conversation. So a couple of things I'm perusing through Stillmark's website. You guys are obviously investing in lots of different companies and it's apparent that you know it's very wide ranging everything from Casa to Ibex to Hoseki. What is it, what developments in Bitcoin is it that you're most excited about at the moment or you see that has the most bright prospects for the future? So there's three buckets that we're focused on. First, Casa and Hoseki are an example of the first bucket, which is companies that financialize BTC, the asset. So that can look like a Casa that helps you secure your own Bitcoin and can help you have access to really bank level or bank level plus security on your assets. Um, or a Hoseki that can allow you to put that Bitcoin to use without moving it by proving your credit worthiness through your Bitcoin holding. Um, so that's the first bucket. And they're, they're, 
there's many other ideas there, but Kos and Hoseki are premier examples. The second bucket and where a lot of our efforts were in 2021 is around lightning network infrastructure or any second layer technology that advances the scaling or the expansion of utility in Bitcoin. And so examples from our portfolio there are Lightning Labs, Voltage, Amboss Technologies that presents this really full stack of Lightning Network infrastructure. But we also have companies in that bucket that have integrated Lightning Network um, for payment purposes or for some sort of transaction capabilities. So examples there would be a Pink Frog, which is a game studio introduced by the people that um, built Candy Crush. Or a company like Sphinx Chat or Stackwork, Paul Etoy's company. So Sphinx Chat, of course, is a chat app. And Stackwork is a decentralized workforce that through Lightning Network can be paid as individuals versus needing to be aggregated into some sort of, you know, workshop somewhere um, just to access payment. And then in the third bucket, we're looking at companies in the mining space which we've traditionally done through the software approach. So how software can facilitate more efficient, um, you know, more profitable mining efforts. But we may expand past that too, to look at, at new mining companies. Um, there's a lot going on now. So to say what we're most interested in is really hard to do because in some ways we have to be reactive to entrepreneurs. Now, there's never been, you know, we're in a bear market, but what's not lacking is entrepreneurial enthusiasm for the Bitcoin space. And so there's just been this incredible like flourishment of entrepreneurial activity. So we've never, we've never been busier in terms of talking to new entrepreneurs and they're operating across the board, across all three buckets. But something that's different, if instead of saying what we're most interested in, I can point to something different about entrepreneurs today from a couple of years ago, there's two trends. One is that there's founders like the folks that founded Pink Frog that are experts in their vertical, but don't necessarily think of themselves as Bitcoiners or they're not religiously Bitcoin. So their mission isn't to start a Bitcoin company, but mm. Bitcoin can enhance what they're doing. It can provide a much better experience for their end users or their clients. In Pink Frog's case, they know that with Lightning Network, their gamers can have a better experience inside the game. They can be better connected to one another within the game. The creators on their platform can be more fairly compensated. And it's not just Pink Frog. So we're seeing this trend of founders at that caliber, caliber right? So if you've, if you've launched Candy Crush and scaled it to 100 million monthly active users, you know what you're doing in the gaming space. They're world-class. We see other world-class operators like that that see Bitcoin as a tool, Bitcoin technologies as a tool within what they're building. The other trend is that there's been, you know, a lot more experimentation around mining. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking to a lot, uh, many more founders that are taking um, different and unique shots at mining, both through a software approach and then just through you know, how to most effectively mine, how to most um, effectively access capital to build. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see people get creative in their approach to mining. And I think you see that reflected in the growth of hash rate, um, people's optimism around the maturation of the mining space. We're, we're hoping to be participatory and collaborative there.
I have one quick question for you about this group of companies. So just looking through them, it's pretty obvious how each one of these is monetized, except for Lightning Labs. I'm curious, is that something that's more of a work of of love that you guys have that you want to perpetuate that? Or is there actually a way that that's monetized? So I think that, so we should, in 10 years, we'll come back to like this section of the video and like laugh about that question because Lightning Labs, like the suite of products and technologies that they offer is really comprehensive and highly valuable, even in in areas where it doesn't get enough love. So Loop and Pool are obvious products, um, technologies that Lightning Labs can monetize. And each becomes more valuable with the introduction of tarot and tarot assets and the mm. influx of activity on the Lightning Network that we expect to see once, for instance, stable coins can be traded free, nearly for free, instantly, globally, and peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Um, but there's more, of course, that Tarot does. But just those are all popular technologies at Lightning Labs. So to quickly talk about something that doesn't get enough love, that can also be revenue generating for Lightning Labs, either directly or indirectly, what about LSAT? What about the ability for a transaction to be sent with a bit of data with it? so that you can do things like monetize um, data via API call. So that just to take, um, you know, sort of like an obvious example, what if every time a, um, a, a, a data stream like Google Maps, what if every time you pinged Google Maps or, or a developer within their app ping Google Maps, it was monetized at a fraction of a cent through LSAT? You know, I mean, it's hard to really. So what I'm saying to take it down to a more fundamental level is what if you could monetize more simply and efficiently machine to machine communication, hmm. the value exchange between machines? You know, I think that's probably valuable. Just a guess. Gotcha. Um, and so I think, you know, I think that Lightning Labs is, you know, the market that they go after is like, you know, visas or MasterCards wallet yeah. right that's who they're that's that's the competition and um you know i i think that even though it's not obvious that they they have an opportunity to displace incumbents it's when i think about your job it's it's almost stressful thinking about it because predicting the trajectory of where this is going is in my view almost next to impossible in some circumstances to elaborate on that thought when I think about Bitcoin entrepreneurship, you have to you have to be aligning with business developers and entrepreneurs that have essentially humbled themselves before the protocol because you're not building a new ship that you're seeing if it's seaworthy. There's already a seaworthy vessel, right? Bitcoin, and you're building on top of it, right? Which is great. You have an inroad there and you think it's an exponentially growing technology but you have to build something that can withstand the movement of that ship and the direction of that ship. And you can't coerce the captain to go anywhere. Like the protocol is king. Even if you want the protocol to go a different direction, or if the protocol develops in such a way that obsoletes your product, right? Um, talk to us about the uniqueness of sort of, I guess, that humility that Bitcoin developers need and, and maybe more, underlying ideological bent um, towards Bitcoin and not just their product. Uh, do you do you agree that that's a uniqueness of Bitcoin entrepreneurs? Maybe elaborate on that a little bit. 
So I think about it a little bit differently. So in terms of a protocol change, obsoleting an app or infrastructure built on top of it, that is much, much more of a risk with these dynamic protocols like Ethereum, right? So Ethereum just switched its whole security model, right? (laughs) In the merge, going from proof of work Mm -hmm. to proof of stake. That doesn't just change the technical solution to security, but it changes the incentive system as well. And we know that what Satoshi did really was that he put together pieces of technology that already existed in a way that allowed disparate stakeholders to be aligned in their incentives. So this was like a, a solution to the psychology of different of disparate stakeholders. And anyhow, I think that everyone really respects that. So actually, Bitcoin protocol is predictable. We know what the core values of the tech are. Um, developer discussions happen in public and we understand how trade-offs are being made by developers and what's being optimized for. And so as long as you are founder or developer paying attention to that and understanding um, what's going to be prioritized and how advancements are made with those priorities in mind, I think it's a really great environment to build on and within because things don't change. You know, that's actually one of the major criticisms against Bitcoin, right? Because there's this really odd, like, deference to change with within the VC community, right? So it's that all yeah. change is good. Except not when you're talking about people's household savings, right? Maybe right. if you're rich, you can take chance or wealthy, not even rich. Maybe if you have access to incredible resources, you can take a chance on change. But if you're anyone else um, in the US or otherwise or in developing markets, you know, you sort of want the financial technology and security that you rely on to be consistent and that's Bitcoin. Um, And so it creates a really great environment for developers. Now, when we're thinking about which companies to back, um, Dan, you make a really good point about something that VCs should pay attention to, which is Does this team understand what Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin technologies are intended to do, and how developers will maintain and advance the protocol in the future? So to go back to our last example about can you get to Visa or MasterCard um, scale transactions on Bitcoin's core protocol, right? Like, can you you, um, offer merchant payment processing, say, just using Bitcoin's core blockchain? Um, if you understood what the developers are trying to do in advancing the protocol and maintaining it, then you knew that, no, you would not be able to do that. And so when we talk to founders, we do, that's one of the things that we do. We want to assess their understanding of the technology and what it will be good for. Um, but you don't have to be religiously Bitcoin to get that. You just have to be someone that, you know, is, as I say that I am a sound tech maximalist. You have to be able to evaluate the technology and understand it. And so that's something that I did, you know, when investing in cybersecurity, cloud networking, so on and so forth. And that's why Bitcoin versus Ethereum or another protocol. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why founders like those at Pinkfrog are choosing Lightning Network versus, say, Tron, because what they're looking for is a dependent, dependable payment rail and they have the capability to evaluate the technology and they want to put their time and resources into doing that to make the best choice for their end users. 
I think, yeah. Okay. So I like where you're headed there. I think where I'm going with the moving ship analogy is not suggesting that Bitcoin core is going to change. It's saying that it's hard to know what new protocols on top of Bitcoin are going to accomplish. So a couple examples that come to mind. Lightning seems like it's the second layer solution of choice, but liquidity remains very low. Who knows? Maybe it's not. Maybe 20 years from now, the main second layer isn't Lightning. Probably unlikely, but feasible. You're building a whole company on Lightning and something uh, something else, another open source protocol comes along and usurps you. Another example would be you're building a Bitcoin custody product, thinking that self-custody is complex. Here comes something like, say, Fediment, just to use an example, that makes totally non-proprietary open source custody of Bitcoin much easier. Your product could be partially or completely obsolete. Just a couple examples. But it's more trying to see where this... It's hard to know. We can, take, we can make predictions and we can be fairly confident. But someone in your seat has to be sizing up, what's this protocol stack probably going to look like? Where is liquidity likely going to flow? And I would think that there is a reality to building you know, on this stack of protocols where you, you obviously have to be paying attention to which direction development's going. I think that's kind of where I was hinting. Does any of that resonate or any yeah. thoughts on that? But this is a, a, a typical challenge of startups in general, not just in the Bitcoin space or not just in the, the broader crypto space. So you always have to be paying attention to, you know, what's new, what can potentially compete, what you should adopt yourself. Um, and also, and most important, what your users are saying. So Lightning Labs is a great example of this, really, because if you look at what they've done, you know, they've they've launched products and protocols, and then they've paid attention to what the people using them have said. And, and by the way, like what they've said passively, right? So how they've actually used the protocol. So here's an example that you are both very familiar with. Um, El Salvador ha- did a $30 um, Bitcoin airdrop to most adults in El Salvador in September 2021. And all of that economic activity, all of, you know, people going to the grocery store with that Bitcoin or to the pharmacy or to Pizza Hut, that was all happening on Lightning Network and primarily um, via Lightning Labs technologies. And so they were able to pay attention to how, what people liked about Lightning Network and what was difficult. And Really what they, one of the takeaways is that people, people, especially in developing markets, need access to Lightning Network. They don't have credit cards or debit cards the same way that um, us people of privilege do. You know, banks have often locked them out. Actually, by the way, this is really interesting on El Salvador. Lightning Network served more people during that period and subsequently in El Salvador than the local banks have. Mm-hmm. So more people there use Lightning Network. It's become this meme. I wonder who this um, who benefits from this. It's become a meme that, you know, Lightning Network somehow failed in El Salvador or Bitcoin did, which is so odd because in fact it serves more people than the local banks. Um, and so if that's the, you know, that should only be a sub headline, if anything, it would, the first headline would have to be the local banks have failed the Salvadorans. <laughs> and then I guess after that lightning network, this nascent technology hasn't done enough yet. Um, 
But what was observable from that experiment was well, two things, really important things. One, Lightning Network is scalable and can respond to this sort of demand and volume of use. And two, that people needed access to Lightning Network because the banks wouldn't serve them in the same way. Um, but Bitcoin's volatility is hard to tolerate. If your family makes $400 a month, and your bills are $400 a month, which is yeah. the case for many people, not maybe for the three of us, but for most of the world, right? And so they took that information and went back and developed tarot. Now, incredible progress on this, right? Because we have this information coming in, in, in Q3, Q4, 2021. Tarot's announced in April. Uh, am I getting those dates right? Um, Terra's announced in April, and now just a couple of weeks ago, it's out in testnet. So that just shows the level of commitment to responding to user feedback. And it's not just El Salvador, by the way, the same feedback can be seen in other emerging and developing economies. Um, and, and so I, you know, I actually think that sort of the relative attunement of founders in the Bitcoin space, especially people, the people at Lightning Labs, to user feedback is much higher in this field than in, in most other tech ecosystems, mm. people. And this is because founders here are, you know, there's a really high percentage of founders in this space that are missionary, right? Not that people don't want to make money. They do, but they have a mission in what they're doing. And so they're really paying attention as to whether or not they're serving the people that they're trying to provide value for in their mission. Um, yeah. and so, you know, I, our portfolio benefits from that. Hopefully the people adopting the technology are the folks that accrue the most benefit. Absolutely. When Terra was announced, it was a pretty exciting thing to read about. I remember back in April and I was thinking at the time, how everyone talks about, or a lot of people talk about in the Bitcoin space about how most of these cryptocurrencies will collapse back into Bitcoin at some point with Taro happening that obviously a lot of people read that read about this and thought holy shit this is kind of the beginning of that in some aspect like the most useful thing that altcoins provide for most of the world is stable coins and if stable coins would somehow come back to bitcoin vis-a-vis -vis taro and it seems likely taro is going to have some other implementations that would allow de decentralized finance to run on the rails of lightning and so what in your mind is the likelihood or probability that those that Taro could bring those things back to Bitcoin and with what kind of speed do you think? Well, the speed is hard to predict. Like the timelines are hard to predict, but it's, um, you know, I think it's very high probability that that. So, so what's happened historically with stable coins, of course, is that stable coins um, flow to the protocol that it transacts most efficiently in terms of this is right. like a trading activity right so if you aren't holding long term and you just need the speed and the cheapness of transaction where are you going to go so it starts on bitcoin right with the omni protocol then it shifts to ethereum and then to tron and i think now and you know traders are always looking for the most efficient um manner of transacting and you know that's that's going to be lightning network so you know, this group of folks, whale traders are very insightful people. You know, they're not mission orientated. Um, and I think that when you win, 
based on the tech separate from the mission. That's a really stable win. And that's what I expect to see here. So I think that you'll see stablecoin activity um, come to Lightning Network. I think that you'll see trading activity uh, come to Lightning Network. And I think it's, you know, Ethereum has, you know, made many mistakes, but even if they hadn't, I think this is, you know, ultimately in the midterm, maybe an Ethereum killer. You know, they've probably done a lot to take themselves out separate from Tarot, but, you know, this, a different type of activity can be managed on Lightning Network as a result of Tarot assets on Lightning. Hmm. When I think about Tarot, what comes to mind for me is how much this stuff compounds in the sense that if we trace this back at its most simple, you got SegWit that enables Lightning, that enables you know, now we have Taproot and now you have Taro. This stuff kind of starts to snowball over time, which is what demands that long time frame outlook, which is somewhat atypical of maybe typical tech crypto VCs. Um, maybe to segue that into a question, what is, we've covered it some already, but what is most unique about Bitcoin focused venture capital? What, what do you what distinguishes you the most from peers or counterparts that are doing more the typical crypto V or tech VC thing? Those are two different groups. Um, well, it's something you said before, Dan. So that what's different, it's, it's very simple. So what's different about Bitcoin venture capital than um, general tech venture capital is just that you need to understand how the company aligns with or, or doesn't with the open source protocols that it depends on. So as you said very eloquently before, you cannot for you don't control the open source developers. Completely regardless of how big a business you build, you are not going to be able to dictate to the developers how they prioritize the trade-offs of their work. And right. we've proven yeah. that, that's been proven in with the whole SegWit2x debacle and the New York agreement from, I think, 2017. So when the most powerful companies in the Bitcoin ecosystem and crypto ecosystem tried to dictate to developers what open source developers, those working on Bitcoin Core, what they were going to do and how they were going to define Bitcoin. And that failed. Um, and so as a result of that, hopefully the space as a whole has learned that open source developers are an extension of your team that you cannot dictate to. So that's how we see it at Stillmark. So when we see a company and we meet a team, we want to make sure that there's an acknowledgement in how they themselves have established their roadmap, that they recognize that open source developers are a part of their team and that they're not going to control them. And, and also the way that those open source developers will prioritize the trade-offs of their work. And so what I mean by that is, you know, um, values that a tech, uh, that the technology can advance, like privacy, are things that are going to be um, prioritized. And then um, things that might help a company gain enterprise value, for instance, um, transaction throughput, that can be something that happens at Bitcoin Core, but it would happen as a result of something else happening, like privacy advancing. So you talked about SegWit. Now, um, this actually isn't different from traditional tech. When something is introduced, when there's an innovation like SegWit, 
what the best VCs in the world do is they look at that innovation and they say, how will that affect my space, the ecosystem within, within which I invest? So an example relevant to my work historically is, you know, in 2012, 2013, 2014, there was a lot happening in the field of data science that actually had impact in cloud networking and cybersecurity, especially, um, is a good example. And so we would pay attention to what was happening at universities and what was being discovered and then try to interpret what that would mean for the security space and then go out and find companies that were best suited to take advantage of that opportunity. So Stillmark, I said, launched in 2019. The reason why it launched in 2019 and not before is because I thought that in order to build a full and diverse general fund in Bitcoin, SegWit needed to be activated so you could have a more robust lightning network and so mm. that you could see an ecosystem of companies be built integrating lightning network. And so Stillmark, you know, couldn't and shouldn't, even if we could raise capital, and we, we could have in 2017 um, or 2016, couldn't and shouldn't exist until we knew that SegWit could be accomplished and adopted. So we saw it accomplished in 2017, adopted in 2018, and then we launched the firm. We pay attention. We paid attention to Taproot in a similar way. So what does Taproot unlock? And um, anyhow, that's the work: is to pay attention to what's happening at core, understand, you know, how the implications. So if we introduce Taproot, which creates, you know, more efficient um, transaction capabilities by enhancing privacy, right? There's like this long um, list of repercussions. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for Lightning Network? What does that mean for companies built on Bitcoin or built on Lightning Network? And we, you know, we try to be proactive. So we form investment hypotheses and then we go out and find the best, you know, founders, the best entrepreneurs that are going to be able to take advantage of what's unlocked. A lot of people, I think a lot of people that at first enter the crypto space in general, they they see Bitcoin, and they see Ethereum, and Ethereum is one of those things that was very attractive to me initially. And then after watching the way it's kind of transformed and transmuted its own use case so many times, I've kind of lost any ideation of owning any of that. What 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 would you recommend for somebody who's trying to evaluate is if Ethereum is something that's worth owning or worth considering? Could you give us some rules of thumb for how and why you would consider it? And if you yourself would consider owning Ethereum whatsoever, especially now after this recent proof of work, the proof of stake uh, movement with the merge that they've had. So first, I, you know, the way that I think about this is it's not what you buy or hold. It's what you try to sell to other people. So that's that's like where the judgment is. So I actually do not care what people buy or hold. Like, I don't have any judgment with that. So if I meet someone that is holding Ethereum or like banana coin or like whatever is the new, you know, thing that people are trying to pump in the moment, like that doesn't, there's no judgment there. People can do that for different reasons. A lot of people do it to try to create like an arbitrage on accumulating Bitcoin, right? So they, they'll try to like ride up a, a, a pump on you know a long tail coin in order to use that to accumulate more bitcoin um, and of course we know that the more mature altcoins like ethereum have actually been trading down against bitcoin so you know it depends on what your end goal is now it's different what you sell is different 
what you try to get other people to adopt is different. And so there is, you know, there can be judgment there. Um, so now I forget the rest of the question. What's different about Ethereum versus Bitcoin? So, you know, I time is very limited. I guess I'm just asking how you evaluate Ethereum, like just some rules of thumb as somebody who evaluates companies for future value. If you were going to compare Ethereum and Bitcoin and try to explain to somebody why is Bitcoin the better long-term probabilistic approach um, versus Ethereum, you see, what would be the reasoning that you would explain that to them? Okay. Um, I will answer that. So first I want to say that because time, all of our time is very limited, we, what we're trying to do is to pay attention to the signal and the long-term value generation and then filter out the noise. So when I'm paying attention to Ethereum, what I'm really looking for are two things. One, I'm looking for things that the community um, or others, people outside of the community got value from and what, even if it's just entertainment, right? So as an example, is there something different about NFTs? Um, I don't find NFTs personally, like it's not, there's no personal hook for me in the NFT space, probably because I like prior, I have um, a passion for the art world. And so I think like some of the way that they tried to sell the NFTs was really, yeah, right. Or it's desecrating uh, yeah. the word desecration, so, I think, Dan. I, I was yeah. laughing about a, a pish tweet earlier in the week. It was like, it was, we knew the cycle had peaked when people had like, you know, 38 pixel JPEGs that they were flexing with in their background on podcasts. But, uh, yeah, I got, yeah. I'm not to, not that we have some art bent and we're not going to go full blown Bitcoin standard safe on moose and just rip, rip art. Uh, but it is hard to imagine that that has long-term aesthetic staying power. Um, right. does it mean but that the underlying people... idea is bad? I don't know. You know? Right. So, so NFTs, so I guess I was just, I, so I don't personally have a passion for them, but if there's a base of people that want to trade collectibles in the form of NFTs, then like we want to pay attention to that and look for opportunities for that behavior or that activity and value proposition to exist on Bitcoin. So it doesn't, you know, I don't have to find something personally interesting to, to get signal from something in Ethereum. So, um, Anyway, we just we try to pay attention to anything that rises to the top and seems sustainable. Now, um, that excludes gambling. Not that I don't have any judgment on gambling, but I think a lot that happens in the Ethereum space that's called one thing like DeFi or NFT mm -hmm. trading. If you actually boil it down to the fundamentals is just gambling. It's like an obfuscation of a gambling behavior. Um, right. And so, um, you know, something that might not be obvious is that the VC space and people that deploy to VCs, especially institutional limited partners. So this would be like a university endowment or like the firefighters um, fund or something like this, someone that deploys to VCs, they often have anti-vice clauses. So VCs outside of the crypto space can't deploy, are you typically just permitted from investing in drugs, investing in, you know, like things related to, to um, you know, any sort of vice activity, and that includes gambling. Um, so, you know, we're there's no judgment on people that like to gamble or gambling activity, but we try, when we look at Ethereum, 
we want to be realistic about what's actually a gambling behavior and what's, you know, some other sustainable activity. Um, so that's how I pay attention to Ethereum. Now, in terms of comparing it to Bitcoin, I or or you know what Bitcoin's trying to accomplish, which is really offering people the ability to opt out of their regional fiat system, right? So Bitcoin's right. aim is the traditional financial system, which discludes many and applies different rules to all, right? Um, so that's where Bitcoin's target aiming. Ethereum, I think, used to be aiming to replace Bitcoin. I don't know if they're still doing that or not. But it's a really precarious spot because everyone after Ethereum is aiming to replace Ethereum, mm. right? So if Bitcoin, yeah. if Ethereum thinks it's replacing Bitcoin, and it's kind of preparing its community for that, right? So it's talking about the value of decentralization, even though they have this sort of like yeah. 50-50 decentralized, exactly. They're, they're yeah. pitching these Bitcoin values to their community. Right. So that the community has these values, but then they're not backing it up with the tech. And at the same time, the Solanas of the world, um, Solana and others, uh, you know, behind it are not pitching those values to their community. And so they're not, you know, decentralization is hard, right? It creates friction. There's a cost to decentralization. Unless you're getting value from decentralization, you should not advance a decentralized technology, right? And For so sure. I think Ethereum really has this weak spot. And once they identify, you know, the risky spot there, and I think that they'll probably, you know, stop feigning their their competitive stance with Bitcoin and instead they'll pay attention to defending their lead on Solana. And if they don't, you know, I think that their lead on Solana and others is very precarious. Yeah. It seems to be a race to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Ethereum's like a young adult or a teenager that doesn't know what it is yet. Um, and I do agree that they're, the narratives are unfortunately diverse, right? Because there is, in my view, a little bit of a rock and a hard place dynamic. If you start barking about decentralization, now you're up against Bitcoin. And now you, you talk about the, the Bitcoin scaling, the protocol stack getting more robust and inclusionary for these other applications, liquidity is growing there. Then if you start barking about speed and functionality, now you're up against more centralized protocols that are probably going to do that even better. Um, we could obviously right. be missing something. We're two finite perspectives, but uh, it does seem to be a little bit precarious where they've positioned themselves, even just from a narrative standpoint. I think you described that exactly perfectly. I think that's the, the most concise way to say it. So, you know, we don't, we, we pay attention to Ethereum, to Solana, to others, but really just to see what's percolating in terms of apps or dynamics that are interesting to end users. Then we look at the data, we filter out what seems to be gambling behavior or just a pure like regulatory arbitrage play around gambling. And then if there's anything left, then we evaluate whether that would make sense in a Bitcoin environment. Yeah. But we also have to prioritize opportunities, right? And so right now today, I think the most important opportunities are infrastructure opportunities. You see that in our portfolio. And so a company like Akaza that provides, you know, really top world-class security is fundamental infrastructure for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. A company like Hoseki, that's something that the three of us could all get value from, 
right? And so being able to prove that you hold Bitcoin to use that to access a mortgage or any other form of a loan or, you know, any, any situation in which you need to prove your creditworthiness, you know, that's another fundamental building block for Bitcoin. But the same is true of the companies that, that are in our portfolio in the lightning space. And I think in the mining space as well. Mm. So it's all um, about prioritizing. How are V I'm assuming you talk to people that are your peers that are maybe just outside of the purview of Bitcoin and what you do primarily. How are they viewing Bitcoin at this period of time? Are they thinking this is an extremely risk on asset? Are they understanding its value proposition at the moment where, you know, this thing could five, 10 X in the next three or four years. How are they viewing this is really the question. I think they're, I think they're, they, you know, people understand Bitcoin a lot better today than they did even two years ago including people that don't spend 24 seven in the space. And that's, what's important is the yes. people. And I'm curious also to what you guys hear at the firehouse um, in terms of how people think about it, but you know, it's the people that have 20 minutes free to yes. think about something fun. And what do those people think about Bitcoin? What questions are they asking? Are they learning, you know, about, FUD, right? Like Bitcoin FUD and, and what's been shot down in the past or proven to be untrue. Can they start to filter out FUD and focus on the signal? Those are the, those are the sorts of things that yeah. we're really curious about, but very interesting. We're starting to see people get really good sort of lie detectors for Bitcoin FUD. And I'm just talking about, you know, people that think about Bitcoin, you know, once a month. Um, and so an example of this is, I think, the energy FUD that we expected to pick up in, um, in Ethereum switch from proof of work to proof of stake. It, it's been a lot less sticky. You know, it might have been something that the media thought they could push or that would get a lot of eyeballs. But what I'm hearing is an understanding from folks that proof of work is an inherently less secure method of, um, of you know, of advancing blocks, right? And, mm. and assuring yeah. a transaction history. And, you know, whether or not people find this valuable, frankly, Bitcoin is on a very clear march to becoming carbon neutral or carbon negative in proof of work. Whether or not we think that's valuable, just from a capitalistic perspective, yeah. that's where the cheap energy is. So, you know, it's just going to happen. It's just happening and now there's this historical track record of it happening. And so, you know, I think that some of these memes are going to start to get flipped around. But the sorts of questions I'm getting asked, I'll tell you about questions I've been asked even just this week, is, are things like, how soon is Bitcoin proof of work going to be carbon neutral? You know, and that because the person is assuming it will be, right? Yeah. And then they're yes. asking me what the timeline is. So this is kind of like incredible stuff is that, you know, people are starting to be able to shoot down for themselves the, this, you know, sort of slander that's thrown against Bitcoin. Yeah. So can you guys, so what are you guys hearing? Can you guys tell yeah. me about when you guys talk about Bitcoin with your buddies, what are they asking? What are they saying? I think it, I mean, this is pretty typical in the bear markets. It kind of dies down and people don't talk about it as much. But one thing I can tell you, and I think Dan can back this up, there's probably three times the amount of people that are dollar cost averaging Bitcoin this year than there were last year. And that's probably true for the year before that. This thing's probably 3Xing at the firehouse every year for the amount of people that are DCAing with conviction. 
And okay. um, I think that's probably the best signal I can find, you know, just people that are willing to continually feed this beast money. Yeah. I mean, they awesome. obviously, not that we're, we know anything, but they have two extremely loud mouths who have had a podcast going for a year and a half that love and care for them, which wouldn't necessarily be the case in, in most firehouses. Um, so yeah, they're either going to be super thankful for us or super pissed at us in five or 10 years. <laughs> we'll see. Um, uh, I do Jury's though, at least I do greatly appreciate, and I've heard, I've heard you say this in a few different contexts, just the biggest encumbrance for people is just time. I mean, mo- most people, if we, if we dumb this down, most people don't give a shit about finance and investing. It's boring. It's like watching paint dry. They want to do their day job or their career that they, they're passionate about. That has nothing to do with that. They have a family. Um, they have recreational passions. They do not have the time or desire to channel their energies towards this. And I, th- I think it was with safe again that you said, what stories are we telling about Bitcoin? And it did kind of strike me because I think in a sense, in our own little corner, that's what we're doing here on BCB. Oh, yeah. We're telling our own story Definitely. from our own context. And if we were to dumb that down as simple as we could, it would be Bitcoin is digital savings technology for the average person. It's something that you yeah. can set, forget, turn your brain off, check it again in five or 10 years, and hopefully have retained or improved your buying power. But narratives matter. I mean, this is something for me to kind of go outside Bitcoin. Like Jordan Peterson's had a big impact on my life. And he's, I mean, one of the primary themes of his work is stories matter. Like that's what drives the world. That's what drives beliefs. And then from those beliefs, action. And not that we want to take shortcuts, at least in from our own, you know, our own brains, we want to try to divulge what we think is is true or directionally correct. But if we're not telling good stories, we're not going to, you know, attract the people that we want to. Um, and everybody's kind of got to do that in their own circle. Uh, so yeah, it's, I think that's exactly right. So I'm, I'm grateful for you all telling stories, um, you know, on the podcast. And I think that's just, it's exactly right. Is that people are busy. So it's easy to sell things to busy people. Right. And the thing is, it's not that people don't care. I don't, people do care about being able to save for their family. It's that they don't have the time to go in and figure out the tech and the incentive system or to spend, you know, the, I don't know, probably like 300 hours that I spent going over the cypherpunk mailing list. Um, Who has the time for that, right? Nobody has the time for that. And so when you hear that there's a bigger, better Bitcoin that can make you more money quicker, it's nearly impossible to be able to discern that that's not true. And so I, you know, I empathize with that and I appreciate you guys trying to make it easier for people to grok. I also think time is the great teacher with this. Um, Obviously, the the three of our thesis is that this is going to work. It's going to capture an enormous amount of value in the decades moving forward. And like when I hear people on Twitter say they've, you know, even people are using some religious vernacular, like converted X number of Bitcoiners. I find it really hard to quote unquote convert people to Bitcoin in bear markets. Like, you know, we, we haven't been in it forever, but really for me, most of the people that came around heard me talking about it through the, the previous bear market. Right. And then 
during the last run-up, my phone started, you know, the text started coming in of people that remembered two years earlier. I said this at a Christmas party, and now it's, hey, teach me about it. And I think, unfortunately, but also fortunately, the same thing will happen this next cycle. You know, I'll have... I'm sure this is true for every Bitcoin. Your phone's going to blow up because you're the Bitcoin person in their life. You're the you're the guy with the Bitcoin podcast or the gal with a Bitcoin VC fund, and they they want to learn more because they're talking about it on MSNBC, and the price has gone you know through the roof. Um, the key is just channeling yeah, them people, towards the right resources. Yeah, that of course, but also people see Bitcoin technology solving problems that they have. And, um, you know, and, and it's, it's not just, you know, that includes our friends. So as an example of that, something that I will get calls about is, you know, I want, I was going to send a wire to my daughter studying abroad. Um, it's the weekends. Is there a way I can get her money? You know, like th- those are the types of questions that mean mm-hmm. something's clicked. And, um, you know, I mean, the technology, even if you don't plan to make money off of holding Bitcoin and appreciating asset, the technology is very valuable. Yeah, there's tons just of utility. To, just, yeah, there, there's tons of utility. And, and so I think even if Bitcoin were to forever be 20K, our work at mm. Stillmark would, would be you know, just as valuable and offer the same potential for returns because the technology itself is very valuable. And the traditional finance system is broken. Yeah. Yeah. One question I have for you. This is totally out of left field. Who put together this Badger logo that you guys have? Because <laughs> it is, <laughs> I don't know how to, it's hilarious. The, it's little, awesome. the little Badger peeking up. It's awesome. Love it. Okay. It's a group out of North Carolina. It's a design shop called Stitch Design Co. And mm-hmm. I think the website is sdco.com. Um, but we went to them and we asked if, is that right? I'm going to look it up. We went to them and we asked, um, for a honey badger. And so we knew that not everyone would get it, but a lot of the types of people that we work with on the founder side would get it. And so it was important to represent Stillmark through the lens of founders. And that's where it comes from. I'm going to circle back and give you the... Yeah, I'm going to circle back with the website because I want to give these folks credit. But you should have seen some of like the sample designs they did. They had like the honey badger and every sort of, um, you know, action pose imaginable. So we're very appreciative of their work. One thing I wanted to uh, double back to, and I, I love the way you kind of explain the utility of this network and protocol, regardless of price, because truthfully, you know, we're speaking from a first world Western lens where we have access to banking, right? So we are in- inherently viewing it more from an investment lens because we have access to financial infrastructure, right? We just take that for granted. I mean, yesterday we, we put in for meals at the firehouse and we pay each other on Venmo and nobody thinks twice about it, right? People in third world countries don't have access to that. There's a quote I wanted you to kind of elaborate on. You, you described Bitcoin as fintech for poor people. And I've also heard you say Bitcoin can get where fiat can't. Spend a little bit of time here as we round out explaining what that means, the implications of that, and the empowerment that it that it brings. 
Yes. So the reason why in 2013, when I found Bitcoin, I decided to focus as much of my life on it as I could was because I saw it as fintech for poor people. And everyone should have access to the global economy and their peers, regardless of if a bank thinks they're worthy or monetizable, right? That's what it's about. Um, it, that should not matter. And so um, that was it for me. That was the hook. I, I know that the hook is different for all different types of people, that, but that's what it was for me. Um, the second part of the question, can you repeat that, Dan? Um, just what, what does it mean? Like spend more time talking about Bitcoin getting where fiat can't. And I think what I'm picking out is you saying, you know, for a, for a first world Westerner, it's bright, shiny price that might attract you to Bitcoin. But for a African farmer, uh, there's probably a different, uh, signpost that you're attracted to. Um, okay. So I but guess what if you what, wanted yeah, to send... What if you wanted to send money or purchase some something from the African farmer? How would you do that? Yeah, I would have. I would literally. I mean, obviously now it'd be Bitcoin, but I have. I would have no clue where to start. Probably right. meander over to a, you know Western Union, and so, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So Bit, Bitcoin opens up the world for you. Also, is my point. So when I say that Bitcoin can get places that. Um, you know, fiat money can't, I mean, things like as futuristic as what we talked about with LSATs. So it can mm -hmm. facilitate machine to machine communication. And by the way, there's, there's already really magical experiences happening with LSAT. I just, um, a couple weeks ago, found um, an app where you could use you could like scan a QR code to access um, like an artificially, um, an artificial intelligence generated picture per your description. So the data that would be transmitted in the LSAT would be like this, you know, request, right? The description of the image that you wanted. And then you would pay for it with a couple pennies by scanning the QR code and it would send both the payment and the data together. And then you get the image. Um, that's a long description for a quick process. It was literally just enter a couple words and scan the QR code and then you have the image. That's a, that's a totally magical experience for me. It was. Um, so Bitcoin can get wherever the internet can get basically. And then beyond that, we see that right with the SMS transactions that are, um, happening in Africa now. So, you know, it just, there's no one, Bitcoin is just, it's sort of unstoppable. What's, what limits Bitcoin now is people's is entrepreneurial imagination. And so, you know, that's no limit at all, right? It's just about people deciding that it's their time to take a shot and um, us identifying those people. So an example, let me give you one practical example from our portfolio of Bitcoin getting where dollars can't easily, Stackwork. So Stackwork is a distributed workforce that is doing, that um, gets enterprise companies to onboard tasks that the workforce can do on their phones. So this is like data tagging, um, you know, transcription work, stuff like this, where you can get paid, you know, a couple cents for every image of a cat that you identify, for example. Now, normally that work would require the, the, um, the, the, a broad workforce to be gathered together under an employer that would pay, you know, would give each person $10 at the end of the week. And you can't efficiently send $10 from a company in the U.S. to one individual. Um, and so you have to aggregate that workforce under one umbrella. But 
via stack work, via lightning, you don't have to. You can actually find that individual with the smart form phone or provide them a phone and then provide them access to work where they can, you know, while they're waiting, and, and this can be part-time work. So while they're waiting for the bus to go to their full-time job, they can also be stacking stats with stack work um, by doing these tasks on their phone. And so then there's their spending money or the money to pay their phone bill. Um, and Fiat can't do that. That does not work with dollars. It can work with dollars on Lightning, but it can't work with dollars going bank to bank. And so it just, so that's, that doesn't just change the lives of the people receiving the money, right? That's actually value for the enterprise that now has access to that workforce. And by the way, when you pay people in SATs, when you pay people instantly, you, you create a better feedback loop and you get more accurate and quicker work. So the enterprise benefits, the enterprise gets a better quality work product quicker. So, you know, Bitcoin is empowering all sorts of people, including privileged people, including businesses. It's just about what it can do being unlocked by entrepreneurs. And our job is to find those folks and, you know, give them capital access to our network, other sort of support so that we can ex help them accelerate their growth. Yeah. And then you think about all these people getting lightning wallets on their smartphone. It's like lightning, you know, let, let's play out a future world of US dollars on tarot. It's like lightning is the marijuana gateway drug to the real stuff, which is Bitcoin. You know what I mean? But like, it's like once that's in their hands, now they're privy to and, and have access to a, a, a money that we believe over time will prove to be a sound preserver of capital. Um, it's a big, I mean, I know I'm speaking 101 in your world, but it's a huge deal as these applications unfold, these, you know, these inclusionary applications unfold. And then it's kind of the scaffolding for the, to build the, the full structure long-term. It is. So people can, we can prove that the Lightning Network works to people by sending them dollars on the Lightning Network. And when they get comfortable and confident and have five extra dollars at the end of the month to save, they can save it in stats and they'll already have the wallet on their phone. So really tarot creates this Trojan horse opportunity for mm. digital USD, right? For tether to Trojan horse Bitcoin into that family's savings plan. And my, my hope of course, going back to the FinTech, the Bitcoin is FinTech for poor people is that um, this will most immediately address a, an acute pain point in developing markets so that people in developing markets will get access to Bitcoin early and get an, un, an unfair or oversized advantage as Bitcoin appreciates as adoption grows. And so there's a real opportunity here for the biggest benefit to happen where it's most needed. And, you know, we, we see a lot of folks um, aiming to provide value to those, those populations. As a closer here, years ago, you spent some time in some firehouses Tell our audience why, and then what did you find most disturbing or interesting about being in firefighter culture? So in my senior thesis at UCLA was on occupational stress and coping in the fire departments. Um, and so I, and you know, this was because I was curious about sort of the, um, the rate of cardiovascular incident at work. You know, I, that, I just didn't expect it. 
And so I wanted to sort of dig in and see what was going on there. And anyhow, it, it gave me the opportunity to meet over 200 firefighters that took part in the research that I conducted. And um, during that time, I spent a lot of time in firehouses and going on ride-alongs. And was there anything disturbing? I don't think so. I think it was, I think a firefighters is the most sort of generous, um, you know, like long-term thoughtful group of people. And, um, you know, I, it's just, it really makes me very happy to know that hopefully there's a group of firefighters learning about Bitcoin through you guys. Um, because it's a community that just, you know, deserves sort of all the like pats on the back and opportunity that, you know, that we can offer and provide. And so I, I, I'm thrilled that this podcast exists and, um, you know, nothing disturbing, no, no disturbing, no disturbing things to report. Maybe that means I didn't spend enough time. Yeah, that. we thought yes. you were a straight shooter here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> After that last comment, uh, I don't know. No, we tend to be Greatly very polite it. to guests, Josh. Like yeah, when guests are true. in the firehouse, it's a, it's very Maybe polite. Maybe the food. Comedy. What? How are you guys? I, I, these were not healthy eaters. Maybe is that would that it's be gotten better? Disturbing. The number of grilled cheese sandwiches I had was never like the uh, no higher rate in terms of the weeks I spent with um, doing ride alongs. What we can tell you for fact is that 10 years ago when I started, it was like beanies and weenies, hot dogs, like grilled cheese sandwiches, just garbage all the time. This generation of people, maybe in the last five to 10 years, has turned that around significantly. And we're eating much better now than we ever yeah. have, at least at the firehouses we're at. I don't, I can't speak for obviously all of them, but we eat much better than that. The caliber of food at our agency is in my view off the freaking charts. And I think, I think our boomers would, I mean, one of the coolest things about the fire it's service, just the boomers. Is it, it's, it's generate, you know, you got 22 year olds that are moving out of their parents' house and 60 year olds that have done it for 32 years. Um, so it's very familial in that respect. I think the boomers would give us this bone, Josh, that the caliber of cooking has just gone parabolic uh, as our generations come in. And we have, a, I mean, we have some guys that are, I mean, could open a restaurant kind of caliber food. I mean, if you give me a choice, even what, sometimes I'm at home and I'm like, would I rather go out to eat or eat whatever's on the table at one of the stations? I might pick the latter. The, the food is off the charts and... When yeah, you get good. hired, it's like step one. You know what I mean? Firefighting is secondary. Get a few recipes. <laughs> Make sure you can feed five or six people. Um, yeah. But awesome. No, well, it sounds like key. I missed out. My timing, missed, I missed out on the culinary, the full culinary experience then. But when I was visiting the stations, they had the, um, they, they had the grilled cheese sandwiches perfected. So next time I'm near <laughs> Chicago, I'll have to... I'll have to come by and test out the new the new menu. Heck yeah, yeah, hit us um, up anytime. Man, this was fun. Appreciate your time. Uh, end this with whatever handoff you want to yourself. Still, Mark, platform's yours here. Sure. So I, you know, we're always keen to talk to founders, no matter how early. And you can find us via email listed on our website, which is just stillmark.com. And I'm also sometimes on Twitter and respond to founder DMs if people reach out there. So, so really a pleasure and honor to be with you guys today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and yeah, let's, we'll stay in touch. I'm looking forward to that firehouse food. 
Thanks, Elise. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast.